RoboCop, RoboCop, RoboCop. It's RoboCop. This is a movie. It is called RoboCop. Do, 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 do. coming to watching movies at the bar a podcast about bar movies and movie bars i'm bethy squires and with me as always is thomas grabinski thomas Hi, how everybody. you doing oh i'm doing well i i like that you're wearing your blade runner 2049 hat bethy uh shortly after i met you it was halloween and you were dressed just as guy who was excited for blade runner 2049 that is correct for reasons that are a little bit vague to me I had a Blade Runner 2049 hat and fidget spinner, and I had to go to a Halloween <laughs> party, so I just wore what I was wearing, but I added the hat, and then I brought my Blade Runner DVD, and I just tried to look amped, and that was the entire costume. You succeeded. <laughs> um, I'm going to introduce our guests so we can get into the hat talk even deeper. Uh, you know, I'm from Galaxy Brains the podcast that has recently started up. Please welcome Dave Schilling. Hello. Thank you for the lovely introduction about my hat. Yeah, what what hat are you you got going on? I am wearing a hat that commemorates the classic film, Cabin Boy. Cabin Boy. (laughs) So you can cut that out. The classic movie Cabin Boy starring Chris Elliott. Um, It was purchased from... This Instagram account called Human Boy Worldwide, which I believe Human Boy is a reference to the movie Clifford. And they have just a <laughs> lot of like weird bootleg movie merchandise. I got a long goodbye t-shirt from there. I got this hat. Um, it looks like they're going to do some Larry Sanders show merchandise soon. So all the things that I'm interested in that, you know, a smattering of other people are interested in. 90s <laughs> nostalgia and ephemera, my favorite things in the whole world. Did you say Human Boy Worldwide? Yes, that's the name of the Instagram Great. account. So go look that up um, if you are interested in I, this, I believe, sold out Cabin Boy hat. They have other stuff, though, which Someday. is pretty sweet. Yeah. There's going to be something you like on there eventually. I'm about to upend my whole wardrobe. <laughs> I, I do worry for the people who are like, I only have t-shirts from Super Yaki Shop, and I have t-shirts for like... From like the thrift store that are all old movie shirts. Like you gotta branch out. I'm a, a clothes guy. I like I like clothes, but I also like you know these kinds of like novelty items. I have a, a movie pass hat <laughs> that I don't need. <laughs> but like you can't only have that stuff. Okay, you can't just shop at, at Super Yaki. You got to do other things with your life. I I like people who appreciate movies, but you know clothes are, in the world of fashion. It's a wonderful thing. Look into it. Don't just wear novelty t-shirts. There's more to life than that. <laughs> There's also precious few movie novelty pants. So if you're just doing Super Yaki <laughs> Shop, you're going to be... Yeah, where are you going to get your pants? Madewell? For God's sakes. Figure it out. There's a there's an Instagram called uh, Pants Boy Worldwide. Uh, it's got a lot of those. <laughs> um, Thomas, what hat do you have on today? Oh, my hat just says Save Our Stages. There is a uh, non-profit that uh, collected money and donated to struggling venues uh, during the sort of peak of the coronavirus, and so I gave them $20. The peak of the coronavirus, that's not now, is it? 
Uh, we're looking at another one, I think. But, uh, <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Oh, boy. I'll buy a second hat. I've stopped saying, like, during the pandemic or back during the pandemic. I just, it's just now earlier in the pandemic. I've just made it all yeah. relative terms now. I'd say the quarantine. You know, that period, the quarantine period where we really couldn't do anything. Right. You're truly trapped inside. You could only, like, eat outside if there's only four other people in the restaurant. Like, that's what I think of when I think of last year. And now it's just like, well, the pandemic's still happening, but we can at least go to bars and stuff. Speaking of, Dave, what is your relationship to watching movies in bars? A wonderful question. Um... I don't like doing it. <laughs> I'll say that. <laughs> I'll I'll be very blunt. I I feel like unless it's a certain kind of movie, and the reason why I picked this movie is that you can watch it without hearing much about it. You can't hear you don't if you don't hear the dialogue, if people are talking through it, you can still understand it. But it's really hard to focus mm-hmm. on a movie at a bar. It's really hard to appreciate everything about a movie. If you've never seen it and now it's showing at a bar, it's being ruined for you, essentially. That said, I, I think I was one of those people that came of age as as a young adult at bars and cl- nightclubs and, and restaurants where it was like, we're going to show old 60s movies. We're going to show French New Wave films in the club, and it's going to be part of the ambiance of it. It's very sexy that we're showing, um, you know, Breathless or something. Um, so that, like the novelty of, wow, this is really old and look at all the the sexy people in their cool outfits. That's fun. But at the same time, like, I don't don't think I can watch The Artist, (laughs) even though it's a silent movie. I don't know if I can watch (laughs) The Artist at a bar. Uh, is that a, is that because it's at a bar or just because you're watching The Artist? I think it's a little bit of both (laughs) because The Artist is a stupid movie, (laughs) but no, it sucks. But also bars are there primarily for social interaction. I want to be able to talk to the person in the bar with me. A sporting event is a perfect distraction in a bar because it is not something you have to pay attention to or intellectualize if you don't want to. With a movie, it is two and a half hours, two hours, an hour and a half of story and character, themes, plot, all that stuff that really requires your attention. Um, So that's kind of why I'm like, "Mm, I don't know about this. I'd rather just watch (laughs) the movie at home. Uh, I had an experience a couple weeks ago, which is my most recent movie bar viewing experience, which was watching 20 minutes of the Brett Ratner Hercules movie. Okay, that's a good one to watch in, <laughs> in a bar. That's perfect. Uh, yeah, I would never watch that at home, but I was at a bar with two of my friends, and we were just watching this movie with motion smoothing. It's it's really poorly directed, even without the was sound. Was that The Rock? Yeah, it's, it's the, rock. the Rock. Man, I, I, we literally just did an episode of, of um, Galaxy Brains with the guys from Blank Check talking about the career of Dwayne Johnson, and I forgot he did that. I blacked out for that entire period of his career. Because that movie was so fucking terrible. It's really terrible. It's also fundamentally misguided in that apparently it takes away the mythical element. And so, like, in the trailer, they sell Hercules fighting big monsters, but it turns out that takes place only in a dream sequence of the film. No. So put that high on a list of what-the-fuck choices. Gritty reboot of Hercules. What a brilliant idea that is. 
You know, I think it's so interesting. There is that certain genre of film that I think specifically, Thomas, you end up watching in a bar like uh, the Alexander Skarsgård Tarzan. Skarsgård Tarzan. This Hercules. And I think our episode last week was on Jungle Cruise. And I feel like that is one in that canon as well of like, this will be on at a bar at some point, I think. You know why? Because these these are movies that they show on TNT incessantly. Right. And Mm -hmm. so if you're in a bar and you're the the bartender and you're like, oh, what are we going to put on? There's no sports right now. You find TNT and it'll be like episodes of Animal Kingdom or like Law and Order reruns or just like a dumb guy movie. Yeah, you got to be careful, though. In what way? Uh, you got to be careful, TNT, because half of the time it's Bones and those corpses oh, are yeah. yucky. And I love it. That's a bummer for a bar. Yeah, it's not good for a bar. Yeah, there's mm-hmm. there's no winning there. I'm ready to go back to Jay's bar and just have Parallax View start playing inexplicably <laughs> at like 11.58 p.m. And then I'm like, oh, I guess I'm going to sit here for another hour and just watch these Pakula compositions. Uh, but it hasn't happened yet. I don't disagree with what you're saying at all, Dave. You'd think that as somebody who started a podcast about how much I love watching movies at bars, I think most movies are not designed for the bar watching experience. It's right. a rare breed of movie often that is not, I don't want to say not good, but uh, does not rely on cohesion. <laughs> it is a more ephemeral experience. Yeah, there's yeah. a there's a Van Damme quality uh, that a movie needs. If it's Van Damme or Seagal... Then you can probably play it in a, in a, a bar and it's fine because you're just like, maybe there'll be nudity. Um, there's certainly <laughs> going to be a lot of punching and kicking. Maybe there'll be one or two acts of gruesome violence. And people will be like, okay, that's cool. I'm glad that was on. <laughs> it keeps your attention visually um, as you're sucking down whiskey or whatever. And the movie you brought to us today is RoboCop, which uh, isn't a Van Damme, but it does have boobies and butts. It surely so does. Great. Oh, baby. It's interesting. I rewatched RoboCop for this for the first time since I was 12. Wow. And I think, yeah. And so I think I had a, a, a version of RoboCop in my head that is not this movie. And so revisiting it, I was like, this is fucking incredible. As a kid, I didn't understand so the cool Verhoeven qualities, the satire, the, the style of the movie. Like, to me, it was indistinguishable from something like Commando when I was a, a dumb child. And I actually still like Commando, but RoboCop is kind of a masterpiece. I would say not kind of a masterpiece. I think it, it flat out <laughs> is. It's one of my favorite movies, if not my favorite movie of all time. Because as you said, it is this incredible black comedy, this really prescient satire about America and about the dehumanization of the American psyche. Uh, in favor of technology and capitalism. And even, I I don't want to get ahead of myself too much, but when we talk about the ending in this movie, the ending of this movie is triumphant when you watch it the first time. You're like, oh yeah, oh, Murphy got his name back and now he's a person again. It's like, well, no, he killed one guy. OCP is still around and he's still a product. Uh, And that is, I think, what... Verhoeven is trying to say with this movie is that the way that they control us is by making us think that we are special and giving us, you know, these little moments of individuality when in reality we are just pawns in a game. And that is what Murphy is in this movie. And so this is a movie that, like every Verhoeven movie, can be played two different ways. 
one way is the bar movie way where it's like, look at that guy. He just got shot. Wow. There's robots and stuff. This is awesome. And the other way to watch it is this is an incredibly textured and brilliant examination of the rot of our society. Yeah. And, you know, we're in this moment where, you know, society at large seems to be critically evaluating the role of policing in society and people maybe more than ever are privy to the origins of the American police. And I I think there's something really salient and evergreen in the satire of RoboCop, this idea that even the most efficient rule following justice attuned unit of policing is ultimately undone given its inability to police, you know, itself, to mm-hmm. to police the rule makers, uh, it's, it's pretty great. Yeah, or, or the intersection of policing and criminality. And the fact that mm-hmm. the police department, the corporation, the, the, the owners of the capital, the, the people that control everything from a monetary standpoint... And the, the, the crooks, the, the drug dealers and the pimps and the, all the people that do the, the dirty things, they're all working together. And they all have one particular aim, and that is to enrich each other. Um, and that is very sobering and something that we're seeing all the time. I have been rereading The Long Goodbye by Raymond Chandler and, like for the past couple of weeks, and I happen to have read like a quote in there that is... Just like when I was watching RoboCop, it just came back to me really vividly. That's like uh, the detective whose name I'm blanking on right now because I'm very tired. <laughs> Fuck. Anyway, he is talking to another PI friend and he says that the main difference between a petty criminal and a businessman is just startup capital. Mm-hmm. It's just that the big that that business takes capital and little crimes don't. And Marlowe, Philip Marlowe, there, I got it <laughs> after a while. Uh, Marlowe says, that's, that's cynical even for me. And there's a lot of big crimes that take a lot of startup capital. And his friend goes, yeah, where did they get that? It's not from just like knocking over liquor stores. And he just sort of like winks at him and walks away. And that, that relationship between like the only difference between crime and business is capital and the ability in this case to privatize the law in your favor. Yeah, a lot of film noir comes from that that feeling that uh, society is uh, corrupt and that it is irredeemable. And that's why Marlowe is a great hero, is because he's cynical in the way that you are cynical. Not you specifically, but you in general. The reader is cynical. Um, Los Angeles is a, a place of contradictions and a place of... Um, you know, lots of in- institutional corruption. Uh, there's a version of RoboCop, I'm sure, that would have been really great that was about Los Angeles. But what's cool about RoboCop is that it is not set in the logical, sort of um, sexy, cool American city. It is <laughs> set in Detroit, which is um, symbolic of American industrial might. And the, the automobile and technology, like 20th century technology. And what Robocop did is look at the decline of Detroit, the collapse of the middle class and the collapse of labor unions and said, here's what's going to happen. Here's how this is going to pan out. And in so many ways, it really did to the point where Robocop is like a, 
like a, a folk hero in Detroit, and I think they they gave him a statue a few years Aww. ago. Oh, is that true? Yeah, there was some I sort of that. RoboCop like Kickstarter like for a statue, <laughs> and then they erected a statue, and he's sort of now this character that's like representative of so many things about the way that Detroit has really become the Detroit of the movie. Um, where corporations yeah. control everything and there's massive disparity and the aim of everything is to gentrify. Like Delta City is the ultimate gentrification in a movie where it's like, okay, we're going to destroy this. We're going to, we're just going to like wreck this part of Detroit. We're going to, we're going to pump it full of drugs. We're going to ruin it. We're going to drop the property value and then we're going to level everything and we're going to build this shiny future, Delta City which you don't really know what it's actually going to look like or anything or what's good, what the bells and whistles of Delta City are. It's just the point that they're going to destroy the inner city and build this kind of suburban paradise. Uh, and that was way before they started gentrifying downtown cores in America, like downtown Los Angeles or something. Mm-hmm. The, again, like this movie is just insanely prescient about everything. I want to um, go back a little bit and do like a plot flyover, but I just want to add while we're talking about how Detroit this movie is, I just wanted to note an irony that they didn't film Detroit specifically because it's a union town and they could film in Dallas for cheaper. And Dallas <laughs> looked more futuristic. They had yeah, all kinds Dallas of like brutalist like architecture. <laughs> yeah, Detroit um, is still pretty old. You know, there's there's a lot of um, classic mid-century architecture architecture and like things that look like old world america whereas you go to the the american southwest or the the west and there's a lot of new developments and and fancy buildings in the in the downtown urban core um so it was i think just easier for them to get the, the the shots that they wanted and the buildings that they wanted to get but like you said cheaper <laughs> this, this was a cheap movie this was not a mega blockbuster yeah. in terms of budget sorry my bad houston not dallas no it was dallas in the first one i thought well i'm confused oh that's robocop 2 that was in houston yep and then robocop 3 was in atlanta wonderful it, reflecting the tax breaks around that time <laughs> <laughs> if you're ever conflicted about something just ask me because i'm a robocop nerd a robocopologist if you will indeed Dave, just as a quick detour, because I have not seen RoboCop 2 and 3, I imagine Mm -hmm. some people listening have not, do they embrace the Verhoeven satire, or does it become kind of a straight action movie? Well, that's a good question. RoboCop 2 is, uh, or was written by Frank Miller, the comic book artist and writer, comic book writer. Um, And Frank Miller was at the height of his powers, obviously. This is post-Dark Knight Returns. Um, I've read multiple places that um, Ed Newmeyer, who was the co-writer of the original, suggested Frank Miller hmm. uh, to the studio for something else. He, he was like, yeah, this guy's amazing. He's a, a super funny, great writer. And as soon as RoboCop 1 came out, Orion wanted a sequel. So they, of course, asked Ed Newmeyer and Mike Miner, the writers of the first one, to write something. And their script ended up being too expensive to shoot. Hmm. Bad, I guess, in the sense that, (laughs) as I read it, it's called RoboCop The Corporate Wars. And it takes place uh, in the future. The first five pages 
RoboCop um, is foiling a bank robbery and he gets shot with a missile. <laughs> and the screen goes to black. You know, it's like the RoboCop vision shuts off. And then uh, you find out uh, that uh, he's been asleep for, you know, like 30 years or something and they wake him up. And uh, it's now this like sort of sci-fi Blade Runner, uh, Judge Dredd-esque uh, world. And uh, there's like a computer that controls everything that RoboCop falls in love with. And <laughs> it's it's very strange. It's It's similar to this comic book called American Flag, which was written by this guy Howard Chaikin. Uh, which was a sci-fi about like cities turning into giant malls. Um, And so Detroit becomes this kind of large mall because OCP goes out of business after RoboCop gets blown up and it's weird. Uh, So they scrapped that because of a a, one, it was not ready to shoot, but then there was also a writer's strike and Frank Miller wasn't in the WGA at the time so they're like oh let's just have frank write it and then uh irvin kirshner who also directed empire strikes back uh and the pilot for sequest dsv he ended up being the guy who directed robocop 2 it's fine um there are some some jokes that really haven't aged well there's a child who is like a drug dealer and with a dirty mouth and he gets kind of beat up uh and this whole subplot about a um a cult leader who gets turned into a RoboCop. So there's like a RoboCop on RoboCop fight at the end. It's fine. I wouldn't recommend <laughs> okay. it. It's a different composer than the first one. It's Basil Polidorus who wrote the, you know, this amazing score. And it's this so good. Wonderful RoboCop so theme. He's replaced with, um, oh boy, what is his name? He did the score, Leonard Rosenman, who did the score for um, Star Trek four. And it was kind okay. of like oompa oompa music. Like, very kind of almost like comedy music. It wasn't any good. And then RoboCop 3, also written, first draft was written by Frank Miller. He had this idea for 2 and 3 to kind of like be of a piece. So the third one is about um, finally they're going to build Delta City. So they're going to forcibly remove all the people who live in old Detroit. And RoboCop is like, that's not right. That's wrong. I'm going to stand up for these people. And so he... um becomes a freedom fighter and he has like a kid friend and like <laughs> ripped horn is in it and robocop fights a <laughs> android ninja and he has a jetpack and it's pg-13 so by, by okay, the third tight. one all of the um satire is gone the the news breaks and all that stuff that made robocop special is gone and now it's just like very cheaply made um, it got held back from release for like three years because of Orion's bankruptcy. So it came, it was supposed to come out, I think in 80, 88, 89, and didn't come out till 92, 91. Um, it sucks. It's also doesn't have, um, um, doesn't have Peter Weller. He's what the fuck? By, yeah. Peter well, Weller. He didn't want to do it. He's like, I'm, yeah, I'm done with this. Sense. This is, this, the second one was terrible. I'm not doing another one. So Robert John Burke, who's also the lead in, um, the movie Thinner ends up playing um, RoboCop. I think he was also a girl, a boyfriend in um, Sex in the City or something. Just kind of one of those handsome guys that showed up and stuff all the time. It's terrible. Don't watch it. So it sounds like the takeaway is that, as we might have guessed, RoboCop is the singular work and attempts to recreate it unsuccessful. There's a cartoon. There's multiple <laughs> cartoons. There's a TV show. It's kind of an adept. The pilot is an adaptation of that that unused RoboCop sequel. Um, there's like two miniseries. 
then there's the the reboot um, that um, oh yeah uh, what's his what's his, uh, Joel, fucking... Joel Kinnaman is in Jesus Christ and uh, Jose Padilla the guy who directed um, Elite Squad he directed it terrible also just bad missed the point completely <laughs> um, yeah I I think this is a movie that really only worked that one time and they've tried and they've tried and they've tried and they hired um what's his name uh the district nine guy um oh blomkamp yeah neil blomkamp yeah who's like his obviously all of his movies are ripping off robocop constantly right they hire finally hires hire him to do it and he's like i'm gonna do the sequel the the unmade sequel and i'm gonna like somehow cgi peter weller into it that that got canceled too. So I don't know how you ever do this again. I don't think it's possible. It's it's just this perfect moment in time, and uh, it's not a franchise. There are no sequels to be made once RoboCop gets his identity back. Paul Verhoeven. It's 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 so very much his work and his ability to yeah. sort of marry really high interesting ideas with sex and violence like mm-hmm. he mixes sort of low art and high art and really interesting philosophy and politics tough act to follow i think maybe one reason why you can't redo robocop not just because the story is already told when murphy has his identity back is because um it's almost like the tomorrowland problem it's this thing that people talk about in imagineering that the issue of tomorrowland is that the future keeps becoming the present reality keeps catching up to our visions of the future so as as we're saying robocop is incredibly prescient and things keep being as bad as robocop so like the the satire the satire in this moment has its edge but if you try and recreate the robocop level of satire now it doesn't have it's the the timing has moved on the vision of the future needs to change with it right yeah, it stops being satire because now it's just a story about oh the stuff that we're dealing with all the time. OCP says uh, that they have moved; they've moved into policing, prisons, and space exploration, and all of like that was kind of a joke at the time, and now that's just factual. Yeah, the privatization of everything seemed funny because it's like yeah, that's going to happen, right? And then it does. And so what's the joke? What's the point of, of doing this? RoboCop is a product of the 80s. It is a product of the anxiety people had about these things happening. You know, the Reagan revolution changing America in a really fundamental way, and it did. And now we're sort of living with the consequences of that, more so than we even were in the 90s. Um, we've gone so far away from where the world was in the 80s and so closely hewed to the RoboCop vision that it seems quaint. It's sort of like Star Trek. Like I, I, Star Trek will mm-hmm. never go away because it is just like a really malleable premise. Ah, people in space and they explore stuff and there's a square jawed hero, male or female, black or white, doesn't matter, but it's like the hero is going to go and you know, solve the problems and give a great passionate speech about, you know, uh, f- the fundamental human rights of everyone and all that good stuff. But the the basic idea of Star Trek is so rooted in either the 60s or the 80s and, and early 90s that you can't, I don't think you can do Star Trek anymore and have it matter to people outside of nostalgia. 
and they keep trying and it sucks every time. Like I don't like the Star Trek shows. I I I think that the new ones are either offensive to me as a as a long-term Star Trek fan who expects it to be a certain way or just like unnecessary, uh redundant or old-fashioned. So I feel that way about about RoboCop is it was such a great story for the time and really kind of was um foundational for me in my worldview and my my sense of humor but you can't do it anymore you can't go back to that well you can't pretend that the star trek optimistic future is ever going to happen and you can't pretend that the robocop future is funny anymore because it isn't it's there's nothing funny about it in retrospect robocop's good business is where you find it is now kind of a ubiquitous corporate philosophy yeah. <laughs> so when i was watching it i was laughing but i also was feeling this pain in my gut um but bethy i know that you want to rein it in and give a bit of a plot summary for people who haven't seen robocop or like me haven't seen robocop in a long time yeah i don't necessarily want to be the one who gives the plot summary but i think that we should just say like just the beats you know uh, Murphy is a good cop who gets shot to shit by the dad from that 70s show and his incredibly diverse gang. He is, because he is part of a privatized police force, his body is automatically donated to this RoboCop program and he gets turned into a robotic police officer who is stripped of his name and pretty much every single part of his body except for, I think, like parts of his brain and his face, like the front of his face head is still intact but they make a big point of t- of saying that they're going to remove every appendage yeah there's very little biological left there's yeah. there's his you know his, some of his brain functions obviously because his memories come back and his face because the face is the thing that people will respond to uh it's the thing that makes it feel okay that this machine is um you know terrorizing them and I think that's that's a really important part of the movie is um, Ed 209. You see the the now classic um, kind of comedic set piece where <laughs> the Ed 209 <laughs> robot, the, the initial prototype of you know what they're going to use to pacify old Detroit comes out and uh, he malfunctions. You know, he's he operates on voice commands and, and, you know, kind of is able to, with his computer brain, analyze threats. Well, he doesn't work. And then he thinks that this guy in the boardroom is uh, is a threat because he's holding a gun and he doesn't hear him surrender. So then he just shoots him with 30, 40, 50 bullets. <laughs> and if you've seen the if you've seen the unrated director's cut, um, you see this this violent act go on much longer than it does in the theatrical cut. And it becomes funnier because it goes on longer, <laughs> but it's kind of like horrifying in the, in the theatrical cut because it's like this really quick shot of him just being pumped full of lead. But as it becomes more of like a Looney Tunes sort of thing where he's like on the, on the, he's splayed out on the model of Delta city and it's, just, he's still shooting him even though he's obviously already dead and his body jerks, um, sort of like a fish out of water. It just becomes funny. Um, so RoboCop being this, you know, machine man hybrid is both less terrifying and also, um, you know, able to be controlled more. Um, he has a certain sense of um, morality. And it, one of the things that's important to note about the story is that Murphy is placed 
into I think it's Metro South, the the mm-hmm. the precinct he's in because he is a perfect candidate for the RoboCop program because they are looking for someone who has a a profile of a straight shooter, of a, a moral person, a a good cop, because they need a good cop to be inside this robot suit. Um, so Murphy's death is kind of inevitable as soon as he's transferred. Uh, Morton, you know, the, the, the evil, um, well, kind of not evil, but like slimy OCP executive played by, um, Miguel Ferrer. He's like, okay, this is going to be, you know, he's going to die. We're going to get this guy. And, uh, of course, uh, Clarence Boddicker, the villain, dad from that 70s show, he does the deed, um, in a really horrible scene that in that director's cut goes on longer, but isn't funny. It's really gruesome. And there's a lot of allusions to the uh, the death of Jesus <laughs> in that scene. <laughs> That's very Verhoeven. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I do I do like the Verhoeven violence, though. I think it's it's very particular and percussive, and there's a lot of splatter. It's I know you said in the director's cut it comes around to being funny, but for me, even in the theatrical cut, I think it is so outrageous and so wet that I was less disturbed than kind of uh, amused by it. Right. Yeah, test audiences said that they were actually less creeped out by Verhoeven's cut than the one that tried to soften it. So just don't doubt (laughs) Verhoeven. Just let him do it. Yeah, the man is a genius. Uh, Also, to come back to Miguel Ferrer, it's not just Miguel Ferrer, but Ray Wise. So you've got two very recognizable actors from Twin Peaks. And so the movie for a moment at the top feels like you're kind of in that universe. We were talking a little bit about how you can't make another one, another version of this movie. But as I was watching it, I was kept being reminded of um, Thomas. I know you haven't seen this movie, but Dave, I know you have. And I think you're a fan. This movie feels like like a, a sister movie to Kids in the Hall brain candy in so many ways. Mm. Interesting. As far as it being like it. it, it as far as uh, what's the worst thing that could happen if corporations are involved in this facet of human life? There's is always like it's one naive person trying to fix something within the system gets plucked by a boardroom into this very bizarre situation, fundamentally changed. The world is definitely different after this happens is it for the better is it for the worse who knows but the corporation wins in the end in the grand scheme of things yeah that's an interesting point yeah i guess the the analogous characters in these two movies would be chris cooper in brain candy mm-hmm. and bob morton in robocop even though morton is not the the hero the movie's called robocop for god's sakes robocop alex murphy is a hero but Bob Morton is the one who says, well, what if we did this? And that is Morton's um, motivation is not altruism. He is not the villain of the movie. The villains are Boddicker and um, what's his Dick Jones. Dick. Those are the villains. But Bob Morton is the reason why these things happen. And Bob Morton says, I have a better way to solve this problem. And Chris Cooper in, in Brain Candy does the same thing. He's not necessarily um, fully altruistic, but he has more of an interest in humanity than the other people that he works with. Similar to Bob Morton is 
Morton is kind of a scumbag and a cokehead and um, just a, a bad person to hang out with. But he at least understands a certain, there's a certain humanity that needs to go into policing. Whereas Dick Jones is like, what's the biggest fucking robot that I can send out <laughs> to shoot people with? And and Dick Jones has that really important line after the murder of that, the, the guy dying in the accident in the boardroom. He says, uh, you know, we had, we had, uh, contracts for uh, repairs and maintenance for like a decade. It did, I don't care if it works. He didn't <laughs> care if Ed 209 worked. All he cared about was the contracts were already going to be signed for the military to use it, for police departments to use it. He just wanted to be able to get that, that, that paycheck. And, and Bob Morton sees an opportunity to say, ah, but what about this? My Robocop project is going to be better than this. Um, and that is unfortunately what causes a lot of, um, horrible things to happen in the world is people think I'm solving a problem. It's like, um, I don't know, Clubhouse. I don't know if you saw <laughs> this, but, uh, Clubhouse is now being used by the Taliban. <laughs> oh, of course. <laughs> to, Why not? To have, to have meetings. It's like, uh, somebody said, oh, what if, um, let's see, what if we had live streamed events, but, they weren't recorded, and they would just disappear into the ether. But people could talk to each other. Oh, someone thinks they're solving a problem, uh, that people can't have private conversations without them being on the record. But then, of course, who wants to use that? The Taliban. <laughs> it's like, stop trying to solve problems. Because you don't, when you try to solve a problem in a corporate capitalist setting, you're only trying to solve the problem so you can make money, and you're not thinking about the uh real world applications the the consequences of your actions facebook solves a mythical problem which is how do we talk to each other we have plenty of ways to talk to each other but now we've created this other thing that can be used for evil and that's sort of what robocop and ed 209 and all this stuff represents or gleamanex in in brain candy is ah we're solving a problem but we're creating nine more problems because of that Jeffrey Katzenberg tries to solve homelessness, accidentally makes it illegal <laughs> to sit down in Los Angeles. Yeah, exactly. Like, rich people should not be tasked with solving problems because they think that money solves every problem. The people that are suffering from the problem tend to have better ideas about how to, to fix the problems because they have to deal with them on a daily basis. The one thing that I will say RoboCop does have over... Ed 209 and maybe over real police is he there's a specifically a scene where he stops choking someone when he's reminded that cops aren't allowed to do that yeah <laughs> yeah he has programming and that the programming works in concert with his own morality that might have been the great flaw in the design if they wanted to control him i think that's kind of the point is you put a good yeah. man in a situation like this and he will do the right thing or she will do the right thing that's not necessarily what happens in practice. Um, <laughs> oftentimes, your uh, surroundings will influence you. And I think a lot of people who would otherwise have good intentions end up being influenced by their surroundings or, or just go along to get along. Robocop's directives are what makes him a hero. You know, that the limits. Police officers do not have those limits today. They are not given directives. They are told to do what they want and they, you know, have their weird fraternity sorority of maniacs <laughs> just to be really blunt about it. 
they don't they don't care about the rule of law they just care about their code of honor watching movies at the bar comes down firmly on the side of all cops are bad that is <laughs> right. that is a view that we espouse on this podcast correct yeah i wish that wasn't the case but no one's given me any sort of alternative scenario unfortunately it was funny this this didn't happen to me exactly but i worked security at a diy like punk show and it only took like three days of being like the person in charge of like quote unquote order to start having such an adversarial attitude towards everybody else who was at this festival right like, I wasn't trying to, like, proactively bust people, but my co- compassion for anybody that I came into contact with lowered day by day just because I had put myself in a position where I was, like, the boss of you. And it just immediately made me less human in my reactions. Yeah, authority is is a corrupting element. I think it's hard to find people who can look at power and say, I've had enough of that. Most people say, oh, power, can I get some more? It's like the Sizzler buffet <laughs> for these people. It's like, ah, I'm, I'm going to go back for seconds, thirds, fourths, fifths. It, 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 there's so few people who are willing to hand it over. And I think, you know, not to change the subject to Hamilton, but the <laughs> one thing that I liked about Hamilton when I saw it, the musical, was the, the how much of a big deal it was in that story that Washington was like I'm not going to I'm not going to run for president again. I'm going to I'm going to go home. I I've seen enough. That was uh outrageous at the time. That was such a a controversial shocking thing for someone to do. To say I've I've had enough. You know what? I'm full on power. I'm going to let somebody else do it because it's important to set that precedent. Um, and that just doesn't seem like a, an American value anymore. <laughs> the idea of I've had enough, I'm going to step aside. There's, there's this, this need for more constantly and, and, and to consolidate your power constantly. If only more people internalize the Zen philosophy of Dalton from Roadhouse in his <laughs> philosophy PhD, he's a, he's a cooler. And if he has to, he will apply force, but he knows when to dial it back. Well, that was that was a big thing in popular culture. I think in in the late eighties, early nineties. Uh, just to bring up Star Trek again, because it's one of my favorite things. Sort of the 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 opposite, the flip side of the coin from RoboCop is Star Trek. In Star Trek, mm-hmm. the Next Generation was a show about how people came together to solve a problem rationally, and there were a lot of shows like that where it was like. Here's some really competent people, and they're all going to work together for the same altruistic aim. If it's a doctor show, if it's a cop show, if it's a uh, lawyer show, if it's a space show, it was all about these kind of ideas of we can all come together in this um, in this beautiful utopian uh, mission to fix things. The West Wing is a giant fantasy about what it would be like if everybody got along and could solve <laughs> problems through conversations. Those things just don't exist anymore. I don't know if that was because of the rise of the anti-hero narrative in popular culture. Um, the Sopranos, um, Breaking Bad, Mad Men, 
The Wire, even these shows about deeply flawed, real people doing terrible things. And we find ways to empathize with them. RoboCop is not that. RoboCop is not a story about people solving problems, but it is not a story about a broken man doing as he pleases to gratify himself. It is about a very good person, a good father who really wants to be a hero for his son. Because you see it in those flashbacks of him thinking about TJ Laser and you know doing learning how to do the, the gun trick because his kid thought it was cool. And and how much of a, a good father he was and, and a husband that seemed like he was, you know, around and and a, a good spouse for his wife. Um, He's a good person. And uh, he's crushed by the system, which is a very European thing, I think. The idea that the system, the world is going to destroy you rather than be a conduit for your hopes and dreams. The the anti-hero narrative that's popular now and became popular in the mid to early 2000s was about how a bad person can bend the society to his or her will, mostly his will, uh, in order to gratify his ambition or his desire. I, I think that sucks. I hate that. I don't like stories like that. I mean, if you can't... It doesn't seem like human beings today can look at those stories and compartmentalize them and make sense of them without finding them alluring or attractive. I think one of the reasons why we got Trump is because that idea of the strong and silent, not silent, the strong, like mouthy, honestly, brooding, yeah, tough guy doing as he pleases is so ubiquitous in our culture. Now in our art, in our, our film, in our television, um, people are like, yeah, that guy's cool, man. He's cool. Right. Nothing cool about fucking Tony Soprano. I'm sorry. He was a bastard. He was a bad His guy. Shirts are he was cool. a horrible. Yeah, sure. He's a horrible dad. No, I know. I am not a <laughs> awful husband and a murderer. And yet now he's sort of on par with, um, the dad from father knows best. Like there, there are people our age who have this real nostalgia for Tony Soprano as like a TV dad. And I'm like, no, you missed the point. This guy stinks. I think all of these ideas and that malignant narcissism also dovetail back into things like, you know, anti-vax ideology. These people who just aren't willing to do things for the greater good. They're not willing to sort of sacrifice their own pleasure in a moment to save the people in their immediate sphere. And it's really depressing. I would like to watch more movies and TV right now about people working together for a common good because it just feels like something that is fundamentally absent in our world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sacrifice is gone. It's not entirely absent, though, because it's on every single, like, police and medical procedural. Most of those are still competency porn about people trying for the greater good. It has a lot more anti-heroes and, like, arguing and smooching than, than like, you know, um, Next Gen had. But it, it's still there, but it's just not prestige anymore. It's not cool. It's It's, like, acknowledged as comfort food. And if something is comforting, it's not as artistic, apparently. Yeah, we sneer at it. Or if it, the comfort food has become something like Law & Order SVU, where, um, yes, these are these are people who are good at their job and they're all trying really hard and, and there's no gray area in terms of morality, but they're all depressed all the time. <laughs> like Olivia Benson has 
so much trauma that she's suffering through and, and that's fine you know that's 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 a core of drama but and Stabler's wife exploded recently it's a whole thing yeah they have to they have to torture the people that do good batman is an Ugh. example of a character do not get i love me started. batman i know a lot of people don't like batman i also like batman i think Dave, he's cool. i love batman i've been batman I've been recently, yeah. sorry sorry i just got like hyped i'm like taking off my shirt and like running around the room yelling I'm obsessed with Batman as part of a system like Adam West or even like animated series Batman is just like one guy helping out where it's like this thing he does after work during, you know, during the day he's a billionaire Bruce Wayne and he actually cares about being billionaire Bruce Wayne who runs a business and several charities. But then after work, he's this is the thing that he does with his son is they go fight crime together. That's their pursuit that they care about a healthy amount. I like a Batman with work-life balance. Yeah, Batman <laughs> is very different from RoboCop because RoboCop is forced into this world without his consent. You know, there is a, there's a certain amount of body horror to RoboCop and there's there's a violation. It's akin to, you know, some sort of assault, not sexual, but an assault on his person. He should be allowed to rest. You know, this is this is unnatural what they have done to this man. They have forced him into this horror that he can barely, uh, you know, deal with. And that's something that comes up in RoboCop 2 is they try to put other people into a, a RoboCop suit and they all lose their minds and kill themselves <laughs> or they go crazy and they start shooting people randomly because they can't function inside the suit. For some reason, Alex Murphy is such a great guy that he can be like, all right, I can deal with this, but nobody else can. Um, he's forced into this situation. Batman chooses to be, you know, Batman. And a lot of people misconstrue the character as a rich guy who likes to beat up uh, homeless people. It's like not what Batman is at all. You weren't paying attention when you watched these movies or cause you clearly haven't read the comic books. That's like the Zack Snyder fascist misinterpretation of or Frank Miller as a character, right? That's yeah. Frank Miller. Frank Miller is the one who's responsible for this because he was the guy who said these stories are fucking bullshit, and here's the real world, and I'm gonna I'm gonna mess these guys up. I'm gonna take Superman, a character who is was designed to be a pure good hero, you know, somebody who is altruistic who says i have a responsibility i have all this power but i have a limit i i'm going to do the right thing i am not going to take over the planet i'm not going to be a bad guy i have a moral code that was given to me by my adopted parents and that's a good story for kids to read and and, and learn about and frank miller said that sucks or you know he probably said at the time that's gay because he feels like the kind of guy who would be homophobic, and he would say things like that. Like, you know, Superman's gay. Frank Frank Miller got very conservative later in, in He's his one of those guys who flipped after 9-11. I mean, he already, there was stuff there, but, you know, one of the people who, who went full cuckoo bananas after 9-11. I don't think he was ever a good guy. Because if you've read The Dark Knight Returns, it's this fantasy about batman being essentially like a libertarian superman yeah. like a, a libertarian hero you know Woof. he's this he's an older batman he takes um 
he takes great pleasure in hurting people. Uh, he has there's some sort of sexual fetish that he seems to have that comes out in the in the sequel. Um, uh, it's just he's training kids like a, an army of children at the end to like be Batman. Uh, it's 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 gross. Um, and then Superman is a Nazi essentially. He's like he's the ultimate Nazi sympathizer. Uh, evil Ronald Reagan says, Superman, you're going to work for me and you're going to do what I tell you to do and you're going to go blow up this island or something. And he's like, all right, well, I, you know, the American way, no problem. <laughs> it, it assumes that Superman is an avatar for America instead of a representation of what we could be if we tried harder. And that's what I, ha- I hate about Frank Miller. And Frank Miller is the reason why people think of Batman as a rich guy who beats up homeless people. Because that is the way that Frank Miller saw these characters as reprehensible and childish. And they are childish. They're childish because they are optimistic about human nature. And don't sully those things, you know? There's nothing good that comes out of sullying these archetypes that are supposed to teach children how to be better people. It's just, it's just pornographic at that point, you know? So Frank Miller misunderstood both Batman and RoboCop. Absolutely. Yes. He didn't understand. Because in RoboCop 2, he doesn't go by Murphy. He's still wearing the helmet. He's still, I am RoboCop. I am here to, <laughs> I have my directives. I'm like The whole point of the first fucking movie is that now he's got his humanity back. And right. you take it away again. Because it's it's just, this is, RoboCop 2 is just an excuse for you to put fucked up shit in a movie. And I, the humanity of Paul Verhoeven is what is so appealing about his work. Uh, the, the, the fact that he clearly understands people. He has an affection for hum- humanity as a, as an idea. And he's a moralist, you know, I, moralist in the best way possible. And that he believes that there is good in the world underneath it all. You know, he can be very cynical about things and very, acutely aware of when things are bad. Um, but those are the, the moralists. Those are the real moralists. Those are the people that really care, the people who say, this is not right, and this is how we have to fix it. Frank Miller doesn't say that with his work. Frank Miller says, isn't it cool to like hang around in the dirt and rub shit on each other? He's a sexist and a misogynist and a homophobe, and he sucks. I think it's interesting because Batman and Robocop both you know, it's sort of going the opposite direction. People lose the cynicism or like the satire of Robocop when you like turn him into a cartoon. He's not a moral exemplar. The, there is a satirical edge. The thing that, that people miss in Verhoeven is, is as we said, the layered meanings. He can, unlike maybe The Sopranos, unlike Frank Miller, Verhoeven's gaze uh, looks at something and says, I can regard this without thinking it rocks. I can say this part's cool, this part's fucked up. uh, And I hope that you, the viewer, can do the same. And some people are like, nah, fuck that. I don't mean to open a can of worms, but Bethy, the thing that you just said about how Verhoeven can observe without saying this rocks, I think is why his movie L works really well, which is a movie that I've come to love in recent years. I, I hope this isn't controversial. If you both hate it, then we don't need no, to talk about no, it. No, I, no, I, I love all of his movies, save for a couple. And I think this is a really tough one because it's about a sexual assault and he's a guy. But it works because of what you're saying. Yeah, it it, it feels like 
his collaboration with Isabelle Huppert was very intimate in, in the way they worked together, something less problematic than it might have been emerged. But I, I do think he's a very thoughtful filmmaker. And it's fine to not like that movie, but I, I love him. I, I think he's similar to David Lynch in that Lynch makes films about horrible things. But because he's so collaborative with the people that are suffering the brunt of that, that there is an empathy to it. You know, yeah. Fire Walk With Me, the Twin Peaks movie, is one of my favorite David Lynch films. Me too. And it's the hardest one to watch because it's so raw emotionally. And you go on this journey with Laura Palmer, um, with Cheryl Lee for most of the film, and it never lets up. It never, there's no safety valve of, okay, well, it's fun again. After they like start the uh, Laura Palmer story after the you know the 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 preamble in um in Oregon, it really becomes dark. But if you watch any interview with her with Cheryl Lee about the experience of making that, she said he was he was there for me all the time. He was really supportive. He understood what he was putting me through. I never felt taken advantage of i felt safe i felt like i was able to create this character that was so meaningful to people who were victims of incest and and were able to to see this story be told in a in a sensitive uh and meaningful and real way and i think verhoven has that similar ability to collaborate and to create real art out of things that are ugly um whereas you know someone of lesser skill and lesser sensitivity would take that subject matter if it's robocop or if it's twin peaks and they would just you know render it a a, a cartoon uh, and that's not satisfying or it's just actively negative and i just want to say by the way i don't hate the sopranos but the sopranos <laughs> was a thing i watched the sopranos you know when it came out because i'm that old it's a thing that just you know, a lot of people took the wrong way and yeah. don't there wasn't that sensitivity from David Chase of like, all right, let's not make this fun. This is this isn't fun. There's nothing fun about the mafia or the way that these people behave. They're racists, and they're they're homophobes, and they're misogynists. But he made it all so fun that we all kind of laugh at Chris and Polly and Silvio and Tony when they're really these grotesque figures that if you saw them in public, you would just be repulsed by them. David Lynch is somebody that I need to warm to more. The more I hear about Mm -hmm. his collaborative process, the more I dig it. But when I first watched, honestly, when I first watched Twin Peaks, when the reveal uh, that it, that it's incest, but then it's also a trans dimensional being, I found that such a cop out because I was working in a domestic violence shelter at the time and hanging out with like actual incest survivors all day. I was like, well, I would prefer to see the banality of evil right now. This feels like a cop out. And I got like very anxious, angry, something like that. But the more I hear about how he works, the more I know that I need to soften to him a bit. Yeah. I mean, I think part of it was the fact that it was on network television in the early 90s. (laughs) And (laughs) it was it was incredibly revolutionary to have it be that for the network to be like, all right, well, I guess it's Leland did it. By the way, spoilers, if you haven't watched Twin Peaks, sorry. (laughs) 
Leland did it. We'll put that in the show notes. Guys. We'll, we'll, we'll <laughs> sort this out. Spoilers for Twin Peaks in the RoboCop episode. Yeah. You know, that was, that was revolutionary. I agree with you. Like, if you just watched it in a vacuum, you might feel like, well, this is just salacious. But the movie really takes all of that and says, no, we're, I'm doubling down is what he says. I'm doubling down on this. I could have, he could have done, you know, Twin Peaks in season three, essentially as a movie. He could have done, you know, a two hour film where Cooper is saved from the, the Black Lodge and all that stuff. But instead he said, the story is about this murder. It's about Laura Palmer as a human being and what she went through. And a lot of the, supernatural elements of it are metaphorical they're intended to create this kind of um a unifying theory of evil you know uh if you watch season three it, it becomes episode more apparent. Eight. episode eight yeah it becomes more apparent incredible of like, what is he trying to really say about america and about the things that are wrong with america and yes it's it's fantasy but it also is so aware of just this kind of like the banality of evil, I guess it's, it's not like it is supernatural and it is fantastical, but there is what you're saying that like, Mm -hmm. there are scenes in the movie that are not about the supernatural, but that are about the terrible dynamic between these three people, between Sarah and Leland and their daughter. I, I don't want to go off too much on Twin Peaks, but I think if you watch it with that in mind, you'll see kind of like why it's so rich and, and why people love it so much. Yeah, I will I will also jump in here as someone who is a diehard Twin Peaks fan, and I will say that the, the supernatural stuff that you're bumping on that sort of allows Leland to sort of abdicate responsibility is more the push of the network to really literalize all of that shit. I think, like Dave said, the show is exploring incest and and the potential evils of fatherhood. Like, you love Leland, but he also is a bad person in many ways, and that just is the show. It's really complicated. I would I would revisit it, but definitely watch yeah. Firewalk. I have I have revisited it and and I am softening to it, but it's still there's still like a little part of me that goes mer. But it's it's going away. <laughs> it's it's fading. Good. Um Good. and it does there is like um the way that that Leland is originally like infected with this original evil does speak to like the cycle of abuse and that it usually abusers were victims first. Yeah, the the idea of Bob is is a metaphor for any sort of trauma. So the story that he tells could be read as him talking about being molested as a child and you watch it and it's like, well, no, he's saying that he was possessed by a demon, (laughs) but that, that demon is just a a representation of trauma and abuse. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely ridiculous as opposed to a literal telling of the story, but I think that's that's what's artistic about it is that it is metaphor in a lot of ways. You can interpret it in a, in a lot of different ways. And RoboCop, just to pull us back to RoboCop, <laughs> that is that is what RoboCop does so well too. Is it takes this ridiculous story about a robot man and it asks these questions about technology and industry and capital and what happens when you become a product. Um, 
you know, RoboCop is is about a, a man becoming a product in, in the same way that Twin Peaks is about the cycle of abuse and, and incest and, uh, you know, domestic violence and the after effects of that. Um, but told through the, sto- the sort of ghost story, um, you know, the American mythological um, ghost story. And, and RoboCop is is telling that there's its story through science fiction. Dave, just your mention of RoboCop being about the the person becoming product earlier. You mentioned there's a body horror element to this, and it did make me think about the one very small way into RoboCop that hasn't already been made would be like a David Cronenberg RoboCop where it becomes like this really intimate body horror exploration of what it is for Murphy to remember himself and sort of try to reconcile that with the fact that he is now a machine. I think that's a movie. I think that could be cool. There was an element of that in the remake in the, um, the most recent RoboCop. They did it poorly, but it was there where he was like in that Murphy is aware. He's self-aware. He doesn't wake up as a mach- as a product. He wakes up as Murphy, but now he's got this robot suit, and he's like, "All right, what the fuck's wrong with me? <laughs> Kill me now!" Which could have been interesting if they really followed up on it, but then it becomes kind of just like a, a typical 2000s action movie, which is a shame because I agree with you. Like there there are so many movies that could have been directed by David Cronenberg <laughs> in, in this period of time. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but American Psycho. He was originally attached to that. Oh, man. Uh, yeah. His American Psycho would have been l- way less funny, but just gruesome and disgusting <laughs> to watch. Because, you know, the source material is obviously just, like, foul and and repulsive. And I think he would have probably pulled a lot more yeah. of that in there. He was also attached to Total Recall for a second. That's fascinating. Yeah. Total Recall and Starship Troopers are two of the other um, Verhoeven movies I want to revisit that I watched when I was younger, and I don't think I grasped why they were cool, but I think I would love them now in the same way I love RoboCop. Oh, Starship Troopers is essentially a spiritual sequel to RoboCop, written by the same person, Ed Newmeyer. Wow, okay. S- Basil Polidora score again. Which I love, by the way. Misaimed fandom again. Yeah, it's 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 an amazing score. He also did Conan. Um so that very kind of like aggressive, lots of percussion, um, brassy, you know, kind of really masculine music. But the the Cronenberg element of Total Recall that survived into the Verhoeven version was Quato, hmm. the um, of course the psychic uh, mutant coming out of the man's chest or his stomach. That was that was all David Cronenberg apparently, as he added that part to the mix. Huh. Um, I think that there is a little bit of this uh, seeing the bo- like you don't see the body horror, but you do get this sort of ontological horror of Murphy's experience when he's being built. Like every time yeah. that his like visor pops up and you're seeing through his sort of TV screen, like a New Year's Eve party or um, Morton saying like get rid of his arm. That's a really like uh, affecting moment. Yeah. Yeah. The moment the moment where he wakes up and it's New Year's Eve and like she kisses him. It's kind of I don't know why, but it's really it really works on me. It's very melancholy. It's sort of like a a little vignette of this person's life that's watching that Murphy is watching. 
and you don't know where she's been before and you don't know what's going to happen to her after this but she's had this moment with with him and it's kind of it's very uh it's bittersweet it's sad i don't know why but it it, it works on me every time it's also like a moment of his like objectification this is like the, yeah. the real beginning of him as product is that people start treating him as like a piece of office furniture like one with a face so you smooch it but um it's i found like the medical gaze of this movie really affecting like every scene of his like the surgeons trying to save him and then later yeah the kissing there's there's the moment uh the commercial at the beginning of the movie the commercial the commercials are very um useful from a plot standpoint the um the the heart the artificial heart Right. That really sets a tone. It says to you, like, they can fix anything. <laughs> and I think that's what that's what Murphy says to um to Lewis at the end is mm-hmm. they'll they'll fix you, they can fix anything. Uh and that's that little commercial is seems like it's not important, but it really is like the crux of the movie is like, We got this heart we can just put into you. It's like made by yamaha or something right yeah yeah. <laughs> shove this thing into your it's chest it's a yamaha a... brand heart yeah exactly yeah it's such a f- funny moment both of uh, like all the commercials are really funny but they're they're also doing a lot of the the labor for the story the 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 news breaks are some of my favorite parts of the movie because they're so efficient they get across what you need to know in a, an engaging and unique way that you would never really seen in a movie before I also think that's what people are most often referring to when they talk about a Verhoeven quality in contemporary cinema. Anytime a movie is dystopian or sort of mocks like weird corporate overreach and people reference Verhoeven, I think they're talking about like that heart commercial. The fact that the world is like immediately set up because we learn from the news blurb that a white supremacist ethno state has the neutron bomb. But that also you can buy a Yamaha brand heart, and that's the Robocop, baby. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's so it's so funny. In retrospect, it's not so funny, but at the time it was like, ah, of course. Like we really do, you know, to go back to how we started this, we really do live in that world where Fox News is that. Fox News has this kind of like besides just being propaganda, it also has this flattening effect on everything where everything is either completely mundane or the end of the world. There's no in between. Uh, In the news breaks um, in RoboCop, everything seems not important, right? There's this like flat affect that they all have. Uh, Casey Wong and, uh, oh boy, what is the, uh, what is the woman's name? I forget, but their names for some reason have stuck with me for a long time. And I put them in a script recently. But they are just like, yep, uh huh, this happened. Uh huh. There's, <laughs> there's a laser <laughs> shot at this planet. Five presidents are dead. Oops. Yeah, my bad. Um, yeah, there's, it's kind of uh, matter of fact. They're just like, well, you know, I hope everyone's okay, and <laughs> that's that's about <laughs> as much as you get. Yeah, they just move on, uh, and and today. There is either that, like, well, everything's just fine, or everything is falling apart, and there's no in-between. RoboCop didn't really catch that second part of it, the never-ending emergency that we live in now, um, where everything, every piece of news is breaking. Every moment, you have to hang on for dear life. 
I think it's funnier, the idea uh, that these horrible things happen and people seem callous to them, which is, I think, more social media, you know, the callousness of, well, so this story, I saw this story about, uh, you know, this, this piece of ice that just shattered and, you know, the sea levels are going up. We just move on from it. Um, but there is still this underlying panic to everything in the media that uh, RoboCop doesn't really get. It seems it's more kind of removed and distant in the way that it per- perceives or portrays the media than what we really end up having. Yeah, I think that was the one thing that um, they didn't presage was how lucrative panic turned out to be. That was some, like, I think we used to think that stability and like the notion of like bounty was going to be the thing that kept consumerism going. But it turns out fear is even better. Fear. At that. But then the blase attitude, as you're saying, is like a consumer reaction almost to yeah. constantly being marketed fear every day. Watchmen more so than Robocop or, you know, other other sort of like deconstructions of the hero mythology or or satirical comics or comics-esque stories figured that out that in watchmen the whole thing is that there is this underlying panic all the time and then you know ozymandias creates the the squid monster to bring everybody together that fear of him of the monster coming back is the thing that is supposed to unite the world and that's one of the things I loved about the Lindelof um, sort of sequel series is that it didn't do that. <laughs> the 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 squid didn't make everybody fall in <laughs> love with each other. If anything, it it, it polarized the world. And, and that was the genius of that show, I think, is that the squid was always a, a metaphor for um, you know, apocalypse and the fear of, of nuclear annihilation. But what we got in reality was something pretty similar to the squid, which was the the it was nine eleven and the destruction of the World Trade Center, and that did again the opposite of what you know Watchmen said that the squid was going to do, which is everybody just kind of like lost their minds. You know, we're still in this never ending psychosis uh, caused by fear, by anxiety, by um, mistrust of the other. That has that was always around, but it was underlined by nine eleven and made worse. And the media figured out that you can weaponize fear and you can profit from fear because of nine eleven. I'm I'm glad we're respecting the Lindelof Watchmen, and I think a lot of Me people too. read and kind of misunderstood Watchmen and thought that that ultimately was a resolution. And Lindelof understood the original text, knew that it was not, and then took it to its logical end. Yeah, the book, you know, the 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 diary, the the Rorschach diary, is the is the weapon at the end. It's the smoking gun that they leave um, behind, and you know it's going to be used at some point. And that was tantalizing as an ending, but a lot of people didn't realize why it was tantalizing, which is that you know the the plan was never going to work it was never ever <laughs> meant to work it was it was impossible for it to succeed because right. there are people that do, did not want it to succeed that human nature is divisive i want to wrap up by talking about how cool his partner is in this movie and lewis just rocks and i think that 
maybe could have been explored more in RoboCop 2 is like maybe the reason that Murphy didn't go completely cuckoo bananas was partially because he had a tether to the world in his former partner figuring out it was him and seeing his humanity so early. Yeah, well, of course, Frank Miller pissed all over that in the second one. And (laughs) the relationship that they had was non-existent. And then by the third one, she's killed in the first five minutes. Jesus. Yeah. Lewis is a really important character. I agree with what you're saying, that she is the connection to humanity that he has. And Verhoeven purposefully cast uh, Nancy Allen because he felt like, one... She wouldn't be sexualized. And two, because he needed somebody who was not a damsel in distress. And and I think throughout his work, there is an understanding of sexual politics and an understanding of how Hollywood can manipulate women to use them as objects. And, and if, if, if Lewis had been a different person, there would have been this expectation that she was going to fuck RoboCop or that like, oh, she's, you know, she's the the hot babe that is his sidekick or something instead of his equal. And so he really made a point of casting someone who could be his equal and could be his friend as opposed to, you know, it having any sort of sexual overtones. Uh, and, and that was completely lost and nobody else understood why Lewis was important uh, to the story and that's a shame because i think she is really important she's not a mother figure even though she feeds him baby food at the end <laughs> but she is like she's she represents something really important um even even showgirls and hollow man two of the the worst verhoven movies or basic instinct you know people will criticize basic instinct for being um you know uh anti-gay because she's bisexual and a, a killer. But really, I think she's the hero of that story. Because Michael Douglas is a, a pervert and a monster. And um, Gene Triplehorn's character is also a, a monster. And in Showgirls, it's kind of a parody of the way that Hollywood eats up women and, and chews them out and spits them out. And Hollow Man is about, you know sexual assaults and all these horrible things and and the way men destroy women. Um, I think Verhoeven has always been a director keenly aware of, of gender politics. And I wouldn't call him a feminist because that's not my place to say, but I do think that he understands it better than, than most male directors. Yeah. I think I would agree that showgirls actually has, you know, for everything that that movie has going on, it is interesting to see the way that there are like three different female characters that negotiate sort of the image economy and patriarchy differently, and they all lose in one way or another. Yep. And and it's like, it's a good illustration of like, you're not, you can't game this system. There's no escaping it. Well, Nomi does escape. There is that. She does leave Vegas, <laughs> at least. And sure, then let, but robs like, that guy, steals that guy's car. <laughs> but she's she's back to exactly where she started, as if none of this ever happened. So yeah, y- that's a great point. You could see it either way as being like a, a at least she got out, or she's never going to be able to get beyond this stage of like barely existing. Yeah, 
I'm really glad that we're talking about Showgirls uh, on its own terms instead of just mocking it, because it's a movie that is, like, kind of wrongly calibrated. There are a lot of things about it that are really wacky, but, like, it's also kind of singular. I really like Showgirls. Yeah, I, I don't think the actors understood the kind of movie they were making. Right. The casting of RoboCop, mm-hmm. the casting of Starship Troopers, the casting of Total Recall, those were all, like... It was crucial that those people played those characters. Peter Weller had to be Murphy. Um, he understood it. He understood the physicality of it. He understood the emotion of it. Nancy Allen had to play Lewis. Kurtwood Smith had to play Boddicker. I don't know if you guys know this, but <laughs> Kurtwood Smith Kurtwood Smith was cast because he looked like Rommel. Not Rommel, but um, um, not Mengele, the other one. The other Nazi <laughs> Himmler. Oh, he looked wow. like Himmler. He gave him these Himmler glasses. Uh, he wanted this banal-looking kind of suburban guy to play the most evil man in the movie because he 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 recognized that evil inside of those people. Uh, if there wasn't the, those particular castings, it wouldn't have worked. And I think you look at Showgirls and you can tell that none of them understand what they're making or why they're doing it. Kyle right. McLaughlin is completely lost. Elizabeth Berkeley is outside of her element. The only one who really gets it is Gina Gershon. Yeah, I would agree. I, I think she's phenomenal in that movie, but everybody else is just like, I don't know. I'm not sure. And then Starship Troopers, it's all of these actors who are so sincere in their portrayals of these vapid characters that it works because of the uh, the authorial intent of it being these vapid characters becoming Nazis. Um, I want to double back really quick, not to lose ground, but I know we've called Kurtwood Smith the dad from that 70s show a lot in this episode, and that is true, and that is baggage that is there when you watch the movie today, but his performance is amazing. I think he's so frightening and singular, and there's like a comedic physicality to his performance, but he's also frightening. I don't know. I think he's great. So I just want to say all respect to Kurtwood Smith. Yeah, he's very funny in this movie. The tigers are playing tonight. Like he's very charismatic. <laughs> Even when he when he walks in with all those like cuts and bruises on his face when he's been broken out of jail by by Dick Jones and he's trying to flirt with the um the receptionist, it's disgusting. Yeah. But you also understand why he's been able to succeed because he has this kind of oily charm to him. Yeah, it's great. It's it's very Joker-esque. In that it it balances a lot of different elements of a character into one portrayal. It can be charming and funny and interesting, but also completely repulsive. I love that he does like one third of a Cajun accent one quarter of the time. <laughs> so it's just kind of like throwing like the the little bit of mustard that he'll put on like two nut or yeah exactly just occasionally throw a little bit on there is a. Uh, fascinating to me and it can you fly bobby <laughs> exactly <laughs> and, and he's almost like with his little scarves he almost looks dickensian he's like bringing in a lot of references to like charismatic evil yeah of movies past at rocks i feel like we could talk forever about this movie and maybe we'll do a part two someday but this has been so great thank you so much for coming dave oh my pleasure i will take any opportunity to talk about robocop and the reason why we can talk about it for so long is because it is one of the greatest american movies ever made entirely and that is no hyperbole i honestly believe that it is one of the best american movies ever made 
I stood up and cheered when it was done, and I also let the <laughs> credits play out because the Basil Polidorus score is so fucking good. One of the best oh, endings of a movie ever. Yeah. And yeah. I don't know if this is a, a well-known thing that you guys know, but there was a, a whole coda after that where they check in with Lewis to make sure she's not dead and all this stuff. And the test audiences were like bored by the end. That <laughs> when he says his name, the movie is over. The story of Robocop is over. And this is why I blanched any ideas uh, besides, you know, the absurdity of the original idea for the sequel of extending this as a franchise. It is not a franchise. Batman can fight evil forever because Batman has a moral code, but the story of Robocop is about a man re connecting with his humanity in the face of dehumanizing capitalism that's it it's over the movie's fucking over the ocp wins still he is still a product ultimately but the movie is over don't fuck with it don't make any more robocop movies please i'm begging you (laughs) it's a great button on this podcast that's a that's a perfect ending dave no, this is what I do for a living. <laughs> Where can people find you online? Well, you can subscribe to you can subscribe to Galaxy Brains, my podcast with uh, my co-host Jonah Ray. We talk about movies, kind of like this, but with a lot more weird sketches and comedy than than this. <laughs> um, our most recent episode, uh, as of this recording, we talked to the guys from Blank Check, Griffin Newman and David Sims, about Jungle Cruise. We also did an episode on Green Knight where we play the Green Knight RPG game. Uh, we have an episode coming up with the Doughboys, Nick Weiger and Mike Mitchell, where we talk about the Suicide Squad. But my favorite episode of the show is our Fast 9 episode. We have uh, Jen Yamato from the LA Times on, and we talk about my theory that the Fast and Furious movies are a retelling of the Book of Revelations, where Dom is actually an angel, sent to Earth uh, by Mr. Nobody, who is God, to fight Cypher, who is actually the devil. So check that out. <laughs> I think it's a good one. I love that theory. As an avowed fasthead, and Jen Yamato is a dear friend, I got to listen to that yesterday. It's There's so much religious iconography in these movies now that there's no way that it's not on the mind of, of um, Vin Diesel in some way. The sort of bi- <laughs> biblical elements of the, of the story. And I'm on Twitter at Dave underscore Schilling. So you can follow me on Twitter as well. Bethy, do you um do you have social media? Do you have a Twitter? Does the show have a Twitter? Yeah, I've got a Twitter at Bethy BSQU and an Instagram at Bethy Squires. I did want to add, because it needs to be said, you can sing the word Robocop to the closing like swelling score it's like a perfect like triple t is you just go like robocop, robocop and that's what we did the whole robocop, time robocop it's robocop this is a movie it you is called it. robocop do, 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 do. and thomas where can people find you oh i loved dave's song um i uh, i'm on twitter at uh, handsome underscore pal and the show is at Movie Bar Pod on Twitter and at Movie Bar underscore pod on Instagram. And as always, do not make another Robocop. Our classic sign off. Please, we always God, say. stop it. <laughs> Nobody Don't wants do it. this. 
Watching Movies at the Bar is edited by Colin Jenkins, with show art by Lindsay Farrell, and that theme you hear at the top, that's Quentin Mulligan. <laughs>